We're right in the middle of studying Ephesians chapter 1, this adoration hymn that sings praise to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Paul is, of course, addressing the Ephesian believers uh, with the normal greeting, the first couple of verses, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. But then he follows it up immediately with this profound hymn of adoration, wherein he draws our attention toward the Father, Son, and Spirit, and the grand themes of redemption, and how the triune God has participated uh, from eternity past on into eternity future, as we say, in what he's doing to redeem fallen man. We spent a couple of weeks looking at that first stanza from verses 3 to 6, the plan of the Father from before the world began. But last week, we started our examination of that second stanza, beginning in verse 7 and going through verse 12. We're looking at the redemption provided by the Son, and that is what we are enjoying here and now, but it also has future implications, which is the final stanza, which we will get to next time. Verse 13 and 14 of chapter 1 tells us about the inheritance that we have awaiting us in the Spirit that is yet to come. And all of this glorious redemption that we have is meant to draw our eyes heavenward, to really bond us in further, deeper, ground us in loyalty to our loving God and to understand, to to really edify us in strength regarding his plan for us, his love for us. And uh, it, it really motivates and inspires us to live lives of faithfulness to him. So, Last time, we jumped into this second stanza that is praising the Son for performing redemption. And we looked at these, uh, well, we introduced these big three ideas, and we looked at the first one, dealing with the role of, of God the Son in redemption. We looked at the word redemption itself and what that means, the idea of the paying of the ransom price to secure our release. And we looked at that concept last time from verse, primarily verse 7, a little bit there in verse 8. But we're going to pick it up today, primarily verse 9. We will refer because verse 8 is kind of a hinge verse. But then we're going to look at verse 9 through 12 and look at these two remaining concepts. That through the work of the Son of God, we not only have redemption, but we also have revelation. That God has revealed to us his special plan through the coming and the future second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we'll look at that concept of revelation. And then last, we'll look at the idea of what he is revealing to us, namely the consummation of all things, the climax to human history. So it's a marvelous passage that is before us. And again, this paragraph, this second uh, stanza in this hymn to the triune God, this paragraph or stanza of the hymn deals with this present work of salvation. And recall what we pointed out last time in verse 7, that it's describing, it's the shift from the past actions of what God has done in planning and electing and predestining, etc., to now what the Son is doing, what we now have because of the cross work of Christ. Let's read that section if you've got your Bible open. Let's reread from verse 7 to verse 12, and then we'll jump in and look at those two remaining concepts of revelation and consummation. All right, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 says this, in whom... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure, excuse me, to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, even in him in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, 
being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Pause there. Now, again, as we look at these three big ideas of redemption, revelation, and consummation, we looked at uh, redemption last time. In other words, we looked at the concept of God's grace manifested in and through redemption. Today, however, we're going to see God's grace manifested in revelation. That not only did God send his son to redeem fallen humanity, but he's also revealed to us his person and his plan through the personal work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though the concept of revelation is primarily centered there in verse 9, verse 8 is a bit of a hinge text. Verse 8 describes how he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. And the idea is that both the redemption that was just talked about back in verse 7, as well as the revelation that he will talk about in verse 9, both of those derive from God's grace, which is what is discussed in verse 8. So verse 8's our hinge. God in his grace has both redeemed and revealed what he will do at the climax of history through the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that redemption occurs through the blood of Christ and results in forgiveness of our sins. That's what we talked about last time, verses 7 and 8. But revelation occurs when God unveils insights, either into his purposes for the past or his plan for the future. The book of Ephesians is going to give us insights regarding both of those. In other words, when we talk about the concept of revelation, revelation means to unveil, to reveal something, to grant information, insight, to help us understand and discern either why God has already done what he's done, his purposes for the past, or what God will do for the future. That's prophecy. And again, the book of Ephesians is going to help us with both of those ideas, both the past and the future of what God has done and will do and why he's doing it. So in other words, God not only helps us see how history leads up to Christ, but also how all history flows from him. And that's what this passage is is drawing our attention to, is how Christ is the center of history. And that's so beautifully recognized in even how we do our dating system. I know it's under attack today in modernity, but nonetheless, you have BC, AD. BC, before Christ, AD, is Latin for the year of our Lord. And of course, in in modernity, we have BCE and BC, right? They're trying to change it. You all familiar with that? BC being, uh, you know, the before BCE, before Common Era, right? And now CE, Common Era. So that's how they're trying to change it. But throughout much of hi- uh, human history, we have centered history, even our dating system, around the crucial event of the coming of Christ. And this is what this text is drawing our attention to, is that God is revealing not only the purposes of why he has done what he's done in past history, but what he will do in the future. And so it's, it's emphatic, particularly here in verse 8 and 9. They're emphatic in in their repetition. It comes out more in the Greek than the English, but you see he's describing how God decided by himself without outside influence to disclose to us his secret designs for the universe or what he calls a mystery, what Paul calls a mystery. We'll come back to that concept in just a moment, the idea of the mystery. But first I want you to just contemplate and try to understand and grasp what the concept of revelation implies. In other words, that God has decided to disclose to us, to let us in on the secret of what he is doing. What is God's design for the universe? Where is history headed? What is God doing? Well, God has revealed that to us in and through 
his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But this very act of revelation is an indication of relationship. Let me just pause and read this verse for us for us briefly. But back in John chapter 15, do you recall this? John 15, 15 is right in the middle of the Upper Room Discourse. Upper Room Discourse is one of my favorite uh, discourses in the Gospel of John and uh, really throughout the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. But the Upper Room Discourse is given by the Lord Jesus in the Upper Room, the night in which he is betrayed, right? And the idea is that Christ is... He knows his time is short. He knows he's about to depart. So he's going to try to give an insight to his disciples because they're about to live life absent the bodily presence of Jesus. So Jesus is trying to prepare them. But he says in John 15, 15, he says, Henceforth, I call you not servants. In other words, from now on, you're not merely called my servants. But, or why? He says, for servants do not know what his master is doing, What what the Lord is doing. A servant doesn't have an inside track of why God or his master is doing what he's doing. Rather, he's just supposed to know what to do and to do it appropriately. But Jesus goes on, he says, I have called you friends. For all things I have heard of my father, I've made known unto you. In other words, Jesus makes a distinction between a servant and a friend. And the distinction is one of relationship, that there's a closer connection, a a, a much more intimate relationship between a friend and, than there is between a Lord and his master, or, you know, or, excuse me, a master and a servant. But the difference is seen in Revelation. In other words, Jesus says, I'm telling you what I'm about to do. Everything that the Father has told me, I'm passing on to you. I'm unveiling what my purposes are. And that act of opening up and sharing his, the, the intimate details of what his, his plan and purposes are for the universe that act is a, a forging of a relationship. It's an act of intimacy. And you understand that even from uh, you know, our own, if we, we could illustrate that in our own lives with that significant other individual that you have in your life and that idea that they know you better than anyone else does. There's things that uh, they know about you that no one else knows. There's a level of intimate knowledge between you. And that idea of that intimate knowledge is, is an evidence of relationship. And that's what Jesus is highlighting. He says, because I have given you this knowledge, I've revealed this to you. He says, you have now been upgraded from a mere servant to a friend. Well, this revelation that is being discussed here in Ephesians chapter one really began in the Old Testament, but it climaxes in the New Testament. Let me explain that. If you consider with me for just a moment, the Old Testament revelation of God, how he revealed his purposes and his plans for history in the Old Testament This is what you would discover, that even before the coming of the Lord into the world, God foreshadowed his plan of redemption to the world through the Jewish nation. He told us what he would do, not only in prophecy, but in other ways. God revealed the foundations of this plan of redemption. He revealed it for mankind through the law, right? You could read uh, the, the law of Moses. You could read of the sacrificial system. These things evidenced it showed humanity their sinful condition before God. The sacrificial system pointed to the one offering for sin, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. It, it, it foreshadowed it, so much so that in John 1, 29, John the Baptist looks to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God, which has come to take away the sins of the world. And the idea is he's, he's harnessing Old Testament imagery of the sacrificial system, and it helps us understand that that was one of the purposes and functions of much of the Old Testament. Also, if you were to study the prophetic books of your Old Testament, 
you would discover that God foretold of the climax of this glorious plan of redemption, namely an eternal kingdom that would bring unprecedented peace and prosperity to the world. We just concluded in our Sunday school hour last week our study of the book of Isaiah. We spent over a year in the prophecies of Isaiah, and let me remind you of Isaiah 2, 4, 9, 11, 60 to 62, chapter 65, and that's just a, a small sampling of the list that we could, we could furnish of what God predicted in the coming climax of history, this coming kingdom that will occur when Jesus Christ comes back at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Old Testament foreshadowed much of this plan, this cosmic plan that God has for human history. But this revelation climaxes in the New Testament, which is what verse 9 is telling us, that he has made known unto us the mystery of his will. Now let's unpack that for just a moment. The concept of a mystery was actually common in Greco-Roman society and culture, particularly there in Ephesus. The Ephesian believers, the original readers of the book of Ephesians, would have been very fond of and familiar with the concept of a mystery. Mysteries were known because they were common to local religions in Ephesus, including the religions of Artemis, Isis, Sibylle, uh, Dionysus, or any other, a number of other pagan gods. Many of the pagan gods had a quote-unquote mystery. What that referred to was a secret initiation ritual that was thought to bring the initiates into a deeper connection with the deity that promised the impartation of spiritual power and insight. In other words, that idea that if you join the club, you now learn more, deeper truths. You understand what the true worship is all about, etc. Many of the pagan religions in that time and place had uh, a mystery or the equivalent of it. Sorry, it crashed on me again. Do you want to, yeah, sorry, take over for me. But what's interesting is that when we get to the New Testament, we see this same word being used. In fact, again, look, let me draw your attention to verse 9. He says, God has made known unto us the mystery of his will. The mystery of his will. In fact, pop over to Ephesians 3 just briefly. And notice how the term mystery of his will is again referenced. Paul describes it in the first few verses of chapter 3. He says, For this cause I, Paul, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, is if you've heard of the dispensation of the grace which was given uh, of God, which has given me to you word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words. Now, what is a mystery? Well, glad you asked. Go to Colossians. Real quick, go to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 26. Colossians 1.26 is actually the key Bible text that gives us the definition of a mystery and what a biblical or New Testament mystery is referring to. As you make your way there, let me read it. Colossians 1 verse 26 says, Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. In other words, Paul is clarifying what a mystery is. He's telling us that a mystery is what God is revealing, new information that God is revealing in the New Testament that we did not possess in the Old Testament. In fact, this is probably the same use. Uh, Paul is using that word mystery in the same way that Daniel did. If you recall, and this was a little while back, but we did a Daniel study, you know, a study through the, the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 2, verse 18, 19, 27, 28, 29, 30, 47, the term mystery appears. 
And what it refers to in the book of Daniel is God unveiling another step or stage or aspect of his redemptive plan. In other words, God is telling us who he is and what he's doing. But he's told us what he's doing and who he is in stages. He doesn't give us all information at once. Rather, his revelation has progressed through time. And when we get to the New Testament era, particularly the coming of Christ, Jesus himself will give us new information regarding the purposes and plan of God. In the days of old, Daniel, for instance, was a huge lurch forward in that process. Daniel gives us vision after vision, recording the the plan of God and what is ahead of him in redemptive history. And he calls that a mystery, what God is unveiling. Well, then when Jesus shows up, Paul says, we have now... New Testament mysteries. We have more information of what God is telling us. So what's interesting is, again, God does not always tell us why he is doing what he's doing. Right? He doesn't always give us the insight into why, but he does give us a glimpse into what he's doing. So according to our text and the New Testament revelation, what is it that God is telling us? What is this new piece of revelation that God is telling us? Well, verses 10 through 12 tells us. God is telling us about the climax of human history, the consummation of all things. That's verses 10 through 12. Let's reread it. He says, again, back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. He says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be the praise of his glory and first trusted in Christ. God's marvelous plan is summarized primarily there in verse 10. And God, his revelation that he's telling us, the new piece of information is what he is going to do at the climax of human history, the consummation of all things. And what verse 10 is telling us is that God is orchestrating this climax of history in order to reconsolidate all things back beneath his righteous rule. That God is going to reorganize the universe and put everything back in order. Let's let's contemplate that for just a moment. Let me draw your attention first to that word dispensation there in verse 10. What in the world does that refer to? Well, a dispensation actually comes from a Greek word, oikonomia, which actually is where we get the English word economy. It refers to a plan that God is managing, orchestrating, or administering. administering. This idea of the plan of God, that's what the word dispensation is referring to, because this word, from which we get the English word economy or dispensation, this term was common in the daily life of people living in the Greco-Roman world, because it related to the foundational social unit of society, namely the household or the oikos, right, in Greek, an oikonomia, that is an economy, a plan, refers to the oikos, the household. In other words, every household, which included the extended family, you gotta think Greco-Roman with me for a second. We're not talking merely nuclear families like, you know, much of modern, you know, time in America. Rather, think Eastern, right, think Middle Eastern, think extended family, think dozens of people in the clan, right? Uh, Greco-Romans would do the same thing. They would often have extended families, particularly more wealthy ones with villas, uh, you know, connected, etc. They had large households. That's the idea. 
Well, every household, which included extended family, including slaves in most of the Greco-Roman society, this household was overseen by a household manager. And again, the same Greek root is used in that uh, concept. Jesus, for instance, will give us five different parables in which he portrayed God as the manager of a household. Think about, and we won't go there for sake of time, I don't have the time to walk through all those, but you can jot them down. Matthew 13, Matthew 20, Matthew 21, Luke 13, Luke 14. Jesus gives a number of parables wherein he describes God as the household manager who gathers his servants. Remember, for instance, the parable of the talents, right? Where he gathers his servants and he gives to each of them an amount of money. He gives them a job to do. Then they go and they do their job and he goes away and then he comes back and there's a day of reckoning. That day of reckoning is when he calls them uh, you know, back before him and says, okay, what did you do with the resources I provided for you? Did you do your job? And there's that day of reckoning. Well, what he's doing, that act of divvying out, you know, the, uh, not just jobs to do, but also the means to do it, that job was the job of the household manager. Now, again, we can still relate to this household manager concept even today. We must exaggerate it many times over to put ourselves back into antiquity. But even today, consider a mother or a father who must manage a household. And they have to think ahead. They have to list the various responsibilities, lay out a plan to accomplish things. Meals, cleaning, laundry, education, budget, saving, shopping, storing, etc. Yet today, we have technology that aids us in our tasks. We have washing machines, dishwashers, refrigerators, stoves, etc., in fact, one scholar put it this way, it's helpful that in, if you look at all of these various pieces of technology in a lar- that we enjoy today, in a large Roman household in antiquity, all of those jobs that are performed by these various pieces of te- technology that we have today were in the olden days performed by slaves. There was a slave that did the laundry, a slave that did the cooking, a slave that did this, and a slave that did that, and for dozens of people in a large household. The point is, the household manager needed to direct a dozen slaves or more and ensure the entire household of dozens of people could run smoothly. It was a big job, and it takes a lot of forethought and a lot of planning, etc. So a smoothly running household needs a plan, a manager, and willing participants. And that's the image that Paul is harnessing to describe what God is doing on this cosmic stage of human history. God has designed creation to operate in this way. God is the one who is the ultimate one who is dictating what should happen, where, when, how, etc. But the created order, order in which we live has rebelled against God. Things are out of sorts. The household is in disarray. The children are infighting, right? The in-laws have come over. No, whatever. But the point is, there's disarray. Everything's a mess, Right? Well, the concept that Paul is giving us insight into here is that creation once stood in orderly arrangement beneath one figurehead, Adam, in the beginning. That's the way God created it, right? Genesis 1, 2. Everything stood beneath the one figurehead, Adam, who served as the viceroy of the universe. This arrangement was ruptured, however, because of the entrance of sin in Genesis chapter 3. Every relationship has been marred. The relationship between man and the earth, man and his wife, wife and uh, mother and children. Everything, every relationship has been disrupted. It's been ruptured. It's not fulfilling the proper order that God designed it for. Rather, everything is in revolt against everything else. There's chaos. 
However, according to Paul in our text, the God-ordained order will occur once again. He says the same thing, not that he's saying here, he'll say it again in Philippians chapter two in just another way, that there's that coming day where every tongue will confess, every knee will bow, right? Acknowledging Jesus as Lord to the glory of God the Father. That idea of God reconsolidating creation, bringing it all back beneath the headship of one individual, Jesus Christ, the last Adam, that reorganizing of God's creation in the household is what God is going to do at the climax of history. And who's going to be at the head of all of it? Jesus. This particular word that's used here in verse 10 is fascinating. I'm going to try not to go long and hard on it. It's one of my favorite Greek word studies. It's a very fascinating word. But that phrase, gathering together in one, is all one word in Greek. And it refers to a sum or a sequence of numbers that is put back into its proper place to produce an equation. It refers to putting everything back in its proper place. In other words, how many of y'all remember algebra class? Right? I know. <laughs> what do I have, like a six-year-old raise his hand back there? Or, I mean, a sixth grader? He's like, I remember algebra. That was like yesterday <laughs> or Friday. Doggone it. No. But the rest of us, you get past the high school age and you start, you know, you try and intentionally forget algebra. But the point is, you remember the whole, you know, what is X or Y, right? Fill in the blank. In other words, there's a specific order that the numbers have to be in to get the proper equation. In like, that's what this word's referring to. At its core, it, it, that seems to be what's, what's the idea. It's a mathematical word. But the idea is that God is going to reorganize everything, put everything back in its proper place to get creation back in order. And this reconsolidation is going to occur at the appointed time. Notice he says again in verse 10 that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. This idea of the right time is, I love this phrase, I'm going to try not to get lost in it, but it appears six times in the New Testament, this idea of due time, or it's translated a couple of different ways, but it's, and it's all in Paul's writings, and it's, it's essentially a shorthand of Paul's, what you might call philosophy of history, that Paul genuinely believed that God is the one orchestrating history. God is the cosmic household manager, and he is organizing all of human history, and everything has its proper place, and God is pulling it off, Stage by stage, at the right time. As my dad always says, God's never early, never late. He's always on time. And that's what Paul is getting at. In Galatians 4.4, 4, for instance, he describes that in due time, the Son of God came, born of a woman, born under the law, you know, to redeem those that are under the law. But the birth of Christ happened at a very specific point in human history. That's one of my favorite little side trail rabbit holes to go down, is to think about what, about, what was it about that era of history why did Jesus come when he came? What was it that God had in store? That what led up to that moment and what flows from that moment? Why, why didn't Jesus come in the 21st century? Why did he come all the way back then? Well, again, that's another several lectures worth to answer that question. But the point is, Paul says in Galatians 4, it was at the exact moment, the right time, the proper moment. And the concept is that same concept of not only the first coming of Christ that happened at the right moment, Paul here says that the second coming of Christ is also gonna happen at the right moment. There's this very specific point in human history. We haven't got there yet, which is why Jesus hasn't come back yet. 
There's things he has to do. There's, there's pieces of, of the puzzle that must be orchestrated before God brings this climax to history at the coming of Christ. But we see that in this phrase, the dispensation of the fullness of times, not just at the right time, but at the fullness of times, the idea is that time is not timeless. History is not just going to go on forever in this cycle, like a re- reincarnation sort of idea. That is not the biblical worldview. Rather, cre- uh, from creation to consummation, history can be plotted. It's progressing towards something. God is bringing all of human history into the climax of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is an end. And when this end happens, God will restore what sin has ruptured. He's going to fix everything. And this is what we have to look forward to. In fact, this grand plan to reconsolidate all things centers in the person of Jesus Christ. All of God's promises throughout the covenants, whether you start from Adam or you go to Abraham, to Moses, to David, or the new covenant that's described in Jeremiah or Ezekiel, all of these covenants, all of God's promises find their climax and their fulfillment in Christ. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20. He says that in him, in Christ, all of God's promises are yes. I love that. In Christ, all of God's promises are yes. It's time. Now, Christ, in his first coming and his second coming, is the one who will bring, again, the climax of history is coming in the second coming, but the revelation, further information that we received about this coming climax, that happened in Christ's first coming. Now, I don't have time to go through it, uh, and, and we have in various avenues in past studies. But for instance, if you go to Matthew chapter 13, uh, and again, we won't go there for a second time, but in the kingdom parables, Jesus is giving new information to his disciples concerning the coming of the kingdom, the timing of the kingdom, the nature of the kingdom, etc. But the big piece of information that Jesus reveals, there's a lot that he reveals. There's a lot of details uh, that he reveals. But the big piece of information that Jesus gives to us that that was not present or at least explicit in the Old Testament is the idea of two comings, that Jesus is gonna come twice, that he came first to die, but he's coming back the second time to rule and to reign. And that idea that the climax of history is something that is still ahead of us and it will transpire at the coming of Christ, that's what Jesus was revealing. And that's what Paul is telling us about, is look at God's grace in giving us this new revelation, helping us understand the personal work of Christ. And we could go on, and again, we've done it in past studies, but uh, Jesus will give us in the Olivet Discourse, right? Matthew chapters 24 and 5, we call it the Olivet Discourse because Jesus is teaching it atop Mount Olivet. He has four disciples that approach him, right? Peter, James, John, and Andrew. And they come to Jesus asking him, when's the end of the world? What's the sign of your coming? What's gonna happen? And Jesus sits down and he's right on top of the Mount of Olives. That's why we call it that, the Mount Mount Olivet Discourse. And he teaches them about those events that lead up into and include his second coming. Jesus gives us more information. And Paul says, look, Ephesians, look at God's grace in not only sending his son to die on the cross. That's redemption. That's what we talked about last time. That's verse seven. God's grace is clear through redemption, but God's grace is also clear through revelation. Look at what he's doing. Look at what Jesus told us he would do. He's coming back. He's gonna fix everything. We can bank on it. We can trust in him. Which is what leads us to the big practical point 
that Paul seems to be making. Consider with me the applicational point of this, this reality, this theology. As Clinton Arnold puts it, he says this, quote, Christ is the solution to the problem of rampant rebellion against God. Christ has begun to exercise his headship over the powers, but there will come a time when all of creation will have to submit to his authority as sovereign Lord, end quote. This reality, of course, now we're, we're gonna get to that, he's foreshadowing in that quote. He's foreshadowing the end of Ephesians 1. We'll get to that. Here, we're only in verse you know, 10 to 12 here, where he's talked about that coming climax to history. But even now, Jesus is Lord of the universe. He just hasn't enforced it yet. Because what happened after his death on the cross? Well, you have his resurrection three days later. Then he walks the earth for how many days? 40. Then what does he do? He ascends into glory. Ephesians 1 tells us that when he ascends into glory, he takes his place, on, you know, the rightful place, on the throne of the universe. And what he does is he is, it says, ruling the principalities and powers. That is the angelic world, the, the angelic spirit realm that the Bible talks so much about. That realm is right now being consolidated beneath the righteous rule of Jesus Christ. But it's a process. The last enemy to be destroyed, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, is what? Death. And that last enemy that will be destroyed will happen at the second coming. The rule and reign of Christ on the earth. And then he turns and he gives the kingdom to the Father. Read 1 Corinthians 15 sometime. But this climax that even now we see Christ is ruling, but he has not enforced that rule entirely. Because why? Do we still have politicians and pagan people that defy God, that shake their fist in the face of heaven, that said, we don't care what biblical morality is or what God says. We're going to do our own thing. We're going to, you know, invent our own definitions to terms. Need I go on? The point is, is right now all of creation beneath the righteous rule of God? No, they're not. They're not submitting. And what Paul is telling us is there's a D-Day coming. Jesus is coming back. And when that happens, all things will be reorganized beneath the headship of Christ. So right now we have the opportunity to submit or bow voluntarily, humbly before God, before Christ as our Lord and our Savior, or we can resist and be forced to bow later. That's the biblical message. But notice the big idea, as Arnold points out in this quotation, that Christ is the solution to the problem of rampant rebellion against God. That's his point is that all things are going to come back underneath the headship of Christ. He is the solution to the problem. Notice in particular, in verse 11, this rhetorical stress on God's sovereignty, as Paul uses three different Greek words to declare that God has a plan. Look again at verse 11. Right, We just read verse 10, that in dispensation of fullness of times, you might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, even in him. All things whether it's the angelic realm or the anthropic realm or the demonic realm, all will bow beneath the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's verse 10. But he says in verse 11, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. Three different Greek terms all in one verse emphasize the idea that God has a plan. He has a will that he has decided, a decision that he has made, and it will happen. His purposes will be accomplished. 
We should take comfort in this because the reality is from these, these verses, the reality that Paul is trying to get us to realize is that God is not responding to events as they unfold with various countermeasures. God, in, in fact, I got a little bit of time. I'm going to digress for just a moment. I read a book a while back, it was a couple years ago, and the book was uh, entitled, Your God is Too Small. Your God is Too Small. And it was an address to the, the theological world regarding open theism. Do you have any idea what open theism is? First time I heard that, I was in college, and, and we were talking about uh, cults, and, and we were talking about heresies in modern theology. And, and I was like, what in the world was, is open theism? And so I, I, just, I just decided to study it. I wrote a paper on it, and I was like, I'm, I just want to learn what that is. And, and I've seen it make inroads ever since. Open theism is the idea that God doesn't actually know the future, and he can't you know, actually predict with certainty what will happen. Now, he's still all-powerful, but he's not acting. He's reacting. He's waiting and watching, kind of with, you know, Wringing of the hands and biting the nails, if you will. They wouldn't put it that way. But, you know, that's the picture of God that this open theism theology develops is that God is still, you know, in other words, the word, the future is not determined. That's the idea of behind open theology. It's still open to be decided that God doesn't quite know what's going to happen. And so God is reacting rather than acting. Now, again, they, they have, you know, the, the evangelical theologians that are trying to push this upon, you know, evangelicalism. I think some of them have sincere desire to try and, you know, understand the scripture, but I think they have mis grossly misunderstood the scripture and they have skewed the basic, very important understanding of God. Namely, as we see here, that God is not responding to events as they unfold with various countermeasures. Rather, he has carefully designed a plan and he's revealing it and fulfilling it. God is known. Remember this, that's the whole idea of his foreknowledge and election and predestination that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, is God has absolute perfect knowledge and he has known it for all time, right? He's, he's not in the process of learning. God already possesses perfect, absolute knowledge. And that idea of his ability to plan, to predict, to tell us what's gonna happen before it happens, and then to make sure it happens, that reality of God's omniscience and his omnipotence are precious truths to Orthodox Christianity, and we should not surrender those so quickly like much of evangelicalism is today. All right, I'm off my soapbox. But the point is, don't get into open theism, right? It's a trap. It's a pit hole. But anyways, going on. Also, this idea that God acts rather than reacts offers, as, as uh, again, think through the practical ramifications of this, it offers incredible assurance not only to us, but consider the original Gentile readers. Try to put yourself back in the shoes of the Ephesians, the original dudes that are reading this for the first time in Ephesus. And you are a converted Gentile, and you used to worship those gods like Isis and Osiris and Sibylle and you know, Dionysius and pick, you know, pick your god, fill in the blank. But all of these various gods that you have uh, some level of allegiance to you have to exhaust yourself to be sure that you're not upsetting any of the particular gods. Do you remember this? We talk about it every once in a while. It's really important for you to understand to a certain degree how paganism works because you then, by contrast, can recognize what we have in Christianity, what we have in Christ. Paganism was this, you know, in paganism, I like to say, 
religion for a pagan is kind of like shopping for good car insurance and health insurance. You know what I'm saying? That you're looking for all the benefits that you can possibly have. And you're trying to piecemeal, right, all these pieces of insurance. I'm not going to get into thanking Obama for that. But the point is, you, you know, they, it's like a, you no longer have a one-size-fits-all. You got to kind of piecemeal everything together. And you got to try and, and you're trying to get all your bases covered, right? Because you want that insurance and you want this insurance. You want to cover this. You want to cover that. You want dental. You want eye. You want ear. You want whatever. And so you're trying to piecemeal, but you, you don't want to spend out the wazoo. So what are you going to do? Well, you're trying to get the best bang for your buck, the lowest amount of obligation on your part to have the highest return. And so what do we do? What happens when you find a better insurance? I have, I don't know about you, but I have no loyalty to my insurance company. You know what I'm saying? Like if they are ripping me off, I will go down the street and I will get a different insurance company. You know what I'm saying? Like I don't care. Uh, You know, I don't have that loyalty to them. So that's the way pagan gods were, is that you could exchange gods if you found a better God that would provide better coverage for less cost. And what's the cost? Well, it's your time, it's your money, it's your resources, how often you have to go to the temple, where their temple is located. Because I don't know if I want to go all the way to Delphi, so I'm just going to worship the dude that you know, has a temple in my backyard. So Because that's way easier, and I could do it on my lunch break. right? That's how pagan people think. That's how they thought. And so they shopped around for the best God, if you will. But at times, when they surrendered loyalty to one God and they cast a loyalty to another God, well, maybe they have hard times. Maybe they have bad health that befalls them. Maybe they have a financial crisis. And all of a sudden, in the back of their mind, they're thinking, oh man, I should have never you know, left that prior God. Maybe I should be loyal to both gods. And so they start stretching themselves thin, saying, okay, I'm gonna be loyal to this God and that God and that God and that God so that I got all my bases covered, right? And no, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, and it is. But, you know, it's, I, I kind of liken it to, you know, in modern, again, the whole health insurance, car insurance, or maybe you got a God for your, you know, if paganism transported into today, maybe you have a God for your car, you know, Sparky, or I don't know what you want to call him, but, and you pray to Sparky, and you, and you just, you, you, you evidence a level of loyalty to Sparky so that when your car goes, you know, then, well, okay, Sparky will take care of it. But you also, you know, Sparky's only good for your car. And so what about your house? Well, then I got to, and I don't know, invent a cool name, but you got to have a God for your house and a God for your car. Well, what about your health? Well, okay, man, got to have a third God in there now. And so you have a third God. And you see what I'm saying? I mean, before long, you're exhausted. You're lost. You're confused. When something goes wrong, you're not even sure which God's mad at you. And they, they believe not only in these gods, but they believe the gods were finite and didn't have enough strength and ability to ultimately protect you. So they would also do prayers, incantations, or sacrifices to ward off demons. Because the demons are those little pranksters that just like running around causing practical jokes in your life. And so they're like, well, I'm going to be faithful to this god, but I'm going to ward off that demon. And so I got to have this, you know, little spell cast on this little you know, incantation and this and that. And, and I mean, it's exhausting. But if you study paganism, that's the way the paganism mind worked. Imagine you're a Gentile and you have just come out of that and you've trusted in Jesus Christ. And now Paul 
trying to help you understand who you are in Christ, that you are grounded and rooted in him, that you don't have to be running hither and yon to all these different gods. There is one God that you need to be worried about. It's the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And look at what this God has done from ages past to what he will do in you know, the ages yet to come. And note that he has absolute control over every sphere of life. So I don't have to have a God for my house, a God for my car, a God for my finances, a God for my retirement fund, a God for, no. I have one God and he does everything. He is infinite in his power. He's infinite in his wisdom. He cannot make a mistake. He's infinite in his love. That he has sealed me, we'll get into that next time, but he has sealed me with his Holy Spirit of promise. That I have a guarantee that he's not going to back out on me. You ever had that happen? You ever had an insurance company? You make a claim, what do they do next? They drop you. Because they don't have any loyalty to you either. (laughs) Right? That's why we don't have loyalty to them. They don't have loyalty to you either. The whole reality is, but does Yahweh do that? Does God do that? Does the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit? No, he doesn't do that. He is absolutely loyal. He has sealed us to the day of redemption, it says. We'll get into that next time. Think about the relief that would flood over your soul when you recognize this is the God that I now worship. But maybe you still have nagging doubts. What about that demon? Should I still have this incantation and ward that demon off? Well, what what about that God? Like, I know Jesus is powerful, but is he really powerful enough? So what does Paul do? He prays this hymn of adoration, and he says, guys, start realizing the power of Christ sovereignty of our sovereign Lord, that everything will come underneath his jurisdiction. He's reconsolidating all things. When, and we'll get to it in a couple of weeks, but after he finishes this hymn where he's praising God and acknowledging God in, this, in all of what God is doing through the process of redemption, he then prays that God would grant us insight to believe it. That's verses 15 and forward. He goes to this prayer of enlightenment. And I don't want to steal my thunder for that. You know, we'll get to that. But the reality is, so many times, it's not a matter of knowledge. You know what the scripture teaches. Maybe you don't. Maybe there's areas of, of, you know, ignorance. Okay. But many times, it's not a matter of knowledge. It's a matter of faith. We know what's true, but we don't actually believe it. We don't actually trust it. And so that's why Paul, and we'll get to it in in the latter half of the chapter, he says, okay, then let's pray and ask God to illumine our hearts, help us understand with our minds the grace and power and sovereignty of God. So this reality is, of course, what he wants us to recognize. And it says that we as believers in Christ actually have a share in this glorious coming cosmic arrangement. He says we have an inheritance. I'm going to hold off on that because that's more next time underneath the inheritance of the Spirit. But nonetheless, what God is doing through Christ, we actually have a place in this coming cosmic arrangement. Christ has earned it, yet we share in it as co-inheritors. God is giving us, in other words, a front row seat to what he intends to do to, to the universe. And he tells us in verse 12 that we will one day be joining this heavenly praise all to his glory. But I think it's so appropriate as we contemplate this, what we need is a hymn. You know what I'm saying? So this is what we're going to do, all right? I want you to uh, limber those voices 
I need to probably stand. Here in a moment, I'm going to invite uh, Andrew, Andrew to come up and lead. My wife's going to take the piano. But let me walk you through this hymn. We, you've sang it before, right? It's Psalm 2. It's, the, it's Why Do the Nations Rage? And it's, it's a hymn. Describe, it's basically following the lyrics, or the lyrics, rather, are following the lines of Psalm 2. If you have no idea what Psalm 2 says, then please, you know, whether you read it, you know, read, uh, obviously read it, get acquainted with it. Uh, I've given two or three lectures to it up on our website. It is an incredibly important portion of the scripture. But the psalm is talking about this coming climax, that Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign. All things are going to be reconsolidated beneath the headship of Christ. So it's, if you're familiar with the hymn, Crown Him With Many Crowns, it's to that same tune. But look at the words quickly, and then we'll, I'll invite uh, Andrew up to lead us. It asks the question, why do the nations rage? Why do kings plot in vain to overthrow Jehovah's rule and his Messiah's reign? Right? The whole idea is they're resisting against him. The Lord in fury laughs. I love this. Is God the God of open theism? Is he reacting? No, he's laughing. When, when people rebel against him, is God up there writhing, you know, wringing his hands and biting his fingernails saying, oh, what am I going to do next? No, God's laughing at how pathetic it is for those who rebel against him. So the Lord in fury laughs from heaven's throne he speaks. The crown will rest on Zion's hill for all eternity. We think we can elect our own leaders. Ultimately speaking, God's already chosen who will rule and reign. The song goes on to say, hear God's anointed say, the Lord decreed to me. Sorry, it blipped on me. You are my son, possessor of supreme authority. Who's really in charge? Jesus. He says, my will declares you heir. God speaking, God the Father speaking to God the Son. My will declares you heir of global sovereignty. With iron scepter you will crush your spiteful enemies. Then he says, kings of the world be wise, O rulers be forewarned. Your wicked pride now cast aside and trembling Serve the Lord. Pay homage to the Son. Fall prostrate on your face before his righteous wrath ignites. Take refuge in his grace. This is a marvelous song. And I want you to understand its truths and sing it with loud joyfulness. All right, so Andrew, come on up here, my friend. And everybody stand up because you do sing better standing. And let's sing away, all right?